following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. This morning we will be looking in uh, Matthew chapter 22, if you have a Bible and want to turn there. All right, so uh, we are in, in Matthew 22. Uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Uh, this section actually begins a series of three. Uh, and Matthew likes to do things in sets of three. Uh, and he is going to give us, he's just got done giving us three parables uh, that speak about the kingdom, but also look towards Jesus' death uh, and what it means. Now he's going to give us uh, three questions. Well, actually, there's four questions to be technical. But three come from Jesus' enemies And then Jesus bounces back with his own question. So this is the first question, and it's a very politically loaded question. Uh, How many of you recently have had some kind of like heated debate over politics? Anybody? Okay, a couple. If you haven't, it's only because you don't talk about politics, right? Because people tend to have really strong opinions about political things, right? Uh, and that was really true in Jesus' day. And uh, certainly in the world we live in today, uh, there are, there's a lot of political and global turmoil in countries and in governments. And every day we read news stories about countries and governments that are uh, seemingly out of control or that are doing things that are, are just terrible. And just close to home, right across the border, we, we're reading every day about some of the horrible things happening in Myanmar and, uh, you know, this general grabbed power, unseized power unjustly, and is uh, brutalizing people and killing people there uh, without justice and, and without any respect for the democratic process and, and the elected uh, and rightful leaders in that country. Uh, most of the world has denounced what's happening there, but interestingly, there's a couple countries that will go unnamed that are supporting what's happening there, Right? And so you see that kind of thing happening, not just in Myanmar, but in various countries around the world. Uh, in many nations and countries, uh, churches and Christians are being persecuted. Uh, churches are being closed and pastors are being arrested. Um, uh, we know of, hear stories of ethnic minority groups that are being held in prison camps and tortured by their own government that's supposed to be protecting them. And so you see these countries where there's a lot of suffering and oppression and, and injustice, right? Uh, but then there's also uh, so-called 
uh, what we call democratic countries, where we're proud of our freedom and are proud that we are we have justice, right, and that we uphold laws. But what we see in many of those countries, like the United States or Europe or the UK, is they're passing laws that are um, so pushing people's freedom that it really uh, is opposed to what we we hold as biblical truth, right, as biblical values. So they're uh, they're passing laws approving things like abortion and same-sex marriage, uh, and oftentimes limiting the rights of Christians because they, they don't like them, don't like us. Uh, and so, uh, whatever the case, uh, the, the question for us as Christians is, how do we respond to governments? How do we sp- respond to kings and rulers if they are oppressive, or if they don't uphold justice, or if they're persecuting the church, or if they're implementing laws and policies that, that, that we're very much against, right? Um, how do we respond to that? What should our attitude be? Uh, uh, do we uh, fight for justice? Do we, uh, do we protest? Do we try to assassinate the, the leader? Uh, of course, maybe you know the story of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who tried that very thing uh, during the days of Hitler's uh, rule in Germany. He uh, and a group of uh, Christian pastors tried, attempted to assassinate Hitler. One of 23 attempts that failed, right? Um, uh, but they thought that was the right thing to do. So is that, should that be what Christians engage in? Right? Well, as I said, th- these are questions that were very real for the people in Jesus' day. And in, in Jesus' day, the Jews were under Roman rule. And they, they, they deeply resented it. And Rome was not an elected, an elected government. Right? They didn't have an election and vote for Caesar. Right? It didn't work that way. Caesar gained power because he killed people and because his army was more powerful than other armies and, and that's how he took power. Uh, it wasn't democratic and it was uh, in many ways unjust and it was often brutal. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, you were protected, but most of the empire, most of the people like the Jews in Judea were not Roman citizens and they were not really protected by uh, Roman the, the rules or the laws that protected citizens. And so Rome often was brutal to the, uh, the Jewish people and treated them with great injustice and cruelty. Um, and, and, uh, and we've seen that uh, already, uh, as Jesus is uh, uh, in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, and along with the other leaders of Israel, are also quite bent on killing Jesus unjustly. Right? They hate Jesus, they do not like what he is about, and they want to kill him. And uh, we find out in this account that they're plotting how to entangle him, how to trap him in his words. Right? So what's Jesus' response to their question? And then from that, what does it tell us about how we are to uh, think about our relationship to governments and rulers who may be very unchristian? Um, so back up and get the, the context here. Uh, I call my first point between a rock and a hard place. If you're not a native English speaker, that might be kind of a weird saying. But a rock is super hard and a hard place is super hard. And it means if you're between the two, there's no way of escape. You're trapped. You're stuck. Right? Uh, uh, you, you're, you're penned in. And, and that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Herodians thought they were going to do to Jesus. They wanted to set a trap for him. So it says in verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how to 
trapped, literally trapped Jesus in his words. Right? So they lay this elaborate plan to snare or trap Jesus, to get him to say something that will get him in big trouble. Right? And so they come up with this great plan. And the plan is to spring this question on Jesus that's going to trap him, that's going to be impossible for him to answer without offending somebody and offending them uh, in a very significant way. And so they send their disciples uh, uh, along with the Herodians, and they ask him this question. Teacher, uh, but before they ask the question, actually, they, they try to flatter him, right? They try to win his favor, maybe put his guard down a little bit, and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Uh, so they're setting this trap. And first they need some bait, so they flatter Jesus. And it's interesting that the things they say about Jesus here are quite true. Like we would affirm that Jesus teaches the way of God truthfully. He anchors what he's teaching in Scripture, and he's faithful to teach the Word of God. And he really, Jesus really doesn't care about what people think. And, and uh, he's already offended the Pharisees multiple times. If you remember, his, his own disciples were saying, Jesus, you're offending these guys. And Jesus is like, hey, you know, I'm just teaching the truth, right? I don't really care because I'm upholding God's truth. And if it is offensive to people, it's offensive. And so what they said was very true, but they pretended that they thought that was cool. But actually they're trying to get Jesus to let down his guard and maybe slip up and say something that will trap him. Um, and so, so, so the trap itself is this, is this question, all right? Politically loaded question. And here's the question. They, they, say, they ask Jesus, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Right? And when they mean lawful, they don't mean like, is it permitted? Is it something we could do if we want to? Uh, it's not like that. It's like, uh, does the law require us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're not just talking about taxes in general. They're talking about a specific tax called the poll tax that was imposed on, on the people of Judea beginning in A.D. 6. So when Jesus was just a little boy in the year 6 A.D., uh, they, they, they imposed this tax. And this tax was a special tax only for people of subjected or countries that they had taken over. So it's kind of like a slavery tax, right? I mean, just imagine if Thailand said, we're going to start a foreigner tax, which actually they, they, they've already proposed that, um, uh, a tourist tax. We're going, to surprise, we're going to charge a foreigner tax. And if you're a foreigner living here, you have to pay 10,000 baht tax every year, right? In addition to what you pay for your visa, right? Uh, we, we, we think that's a very unfair tax, right? Well, that's exactly what they did to the, the people of Judea. They said, we're going to charge you a special tax just because you're not Roman and just because we've conquered your country. And it was really a very insulting tax. It was a way of saying, see, we, we won, and we're going to make you pay every year to remind you that you are no longer a free people and we've conquered your country. Now, you can, if you can imagine, that did not go over well, right? Uh, and... Um, and in fact, in 6 AD, not long after that, a Galilean named Judas, uh, uh, along with a bunch of Galileans who were super mad about this, uh, rose up and tried to overthrow Rome. Right? They had a riot and they, they tried to rebel. They tried to 
uh, kick Rome out, but that's kind of like well, what it was like. It's, it's, a, it's like a cat taking on a lion, you know. It's just not going to happen. And they lost, and the Romans crushed them uh, and crushed the rebellion. Uh, but ever since that time, the, the Jewish people deeply resented this tax. So, so this question isn't just about taxes in general. This is about a particular tax that was super offensive to the Jewish people. And, um, and so it was very emotional. And people's opinions about this tax were, were, were extremely emotional right, and strong. And there were basically two groups or two camps, and they were very much on opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, opposite ends of the, of the thinking. And one were a group called the Zealots. And uh, Judas, the Galilean, was a zealot. And the Zealots believed that uh, the call of God was for them to establish independence as a country and to get out from underneath Roman rule. Um, and they, uh, it began in AD 6 with Judas's initial result, uh, revolt, rebellion. But that attitude continued on until 66 AD. And then in 66 AD, so another 30 years after Jesus died, um, they revolted again. And that revolt in AD 66 led to the final, uh, ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. Right? It did not end well. And the Romans finally completely leveled Jerusalem, burned and tore down the temple, and dispersed the Jews uh, all over the world outside of Judea because they were tired of their rebellion. Right? And it was over this tax. Right? It was this exact tax that led to the ultimate downfall of Jerusalem. Right? So this is a really big deal. Right? It's not just a uh, kind of a, a minor debate about taxes. Right? It is about this, this growing uh, resentment of Rome that all seem to focus on this unfair and unjust tax. Uh, and if you remember, Jesus is being followed by this large crowd who are mostly supporters. And do you remember where they were mostly from? Galilee, right? That's where Jesus had spent most of his time, most of his ministry. It was kind of his home base. And uh, a, a large contingent of Galileans came to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, uh, where they were going to have their own Seder dinner. Plug for the Seder dinner right here. Buy your tickets, right? Don't forget, right? And it was, uh, that's why they were there. They were there for the Passover, to celebrate the Seder, uh, to celebrate the Passover. And they were excited, and, they were, and these were zealous Galileans, right? And they were Jesus' largest and best supporters, um, but it wasn't just the, the, the zealots, okay? So where are the Pharisees? Because it's the Pharisees that are behind this, right? Well, the Pharisees, uh, well, would, would never call themselves zealots because they, they were really good at, at playing the, the, the politics game, right? Like, like they would never uh, really identify themselves completely with the zealots because they wanted to be friends with Rome, right? Rome had given them power and authority in Jerusalem, and uh, they didn't want to mess that up, right? And so uh, they weren't really, uh, wouldn't call themselves zealous, but part of them, there was a part of the, of the thinking of the Pharisees that very much lined up with the zealots. Uh, but theirs was based more on a, a theological or a religious spiritual reason rather than a political reason. And um, it had to do with uh, the way the coin was made. So the coin that they're talking about for this tax was a denarius, right? A Roman denarius. And, and the, the value was about a day's wage. 
So it wasn't actually a terrible tax. I mean, I would love it if all I had to pay for taxes was just one day's wage. Uh, sign me up for that. I'm, I'd be all for that, right? Um, of course, if you're barely making it, uh, one day's wage would be, would be hard, right? If you had to sacrifice you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner to pay this tax, uh, it would be hard. Uh, but but their, their real objection was what was printed on the coin. And on the coin was a picture of, of Caesar, as we know, and an inscription. And the inscription says this. It's translated, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Right? And basically it was a claim to being God. It's like, uh, my dad was a god, and guess what? I'm a god. And it's right there on that coin. Here's me. I'm the god, Caesar. Right? Tiberius Caesar. And on the flip side of the coin was uh, the image of a, of a female goddess. Uh, it may have been the Empress Livia, uh, but, but it was being personified as a goddess of Rome. Right? And it also had some features on there, uh, some inscriptions about the high priest of the Roman religion which was emperor worship. Um, so just, just to put it in perspective, imagine this, because you know, if we get out of our wallet and we look at our Thai, you know, our Thai currency, right? Uh, it has a picture of the king on it, uh, which is one thing. But imagine if it actually had a picture of Buddha on it, like a Buddha image. And imagine if the inscription on our Thai bot actually said, um, in honor of the beloved Buddha who we worship. <laughs> Um, how would you feel about carrying around and using Thai currency, right, if it said that? Well, I don't know. Maybe you think, well, I've got to spend it, I've got to spend it, I will, right? But, um, and, and actually with Rome, uh, it was intentional. They were actually trying to promote emperor worship. And it was a, a way to get free advertising on the coins to promote emperor worship, to say, look, uh, our emperor... Uh, the Caesar, he is a god, and just just remember that, right? As you spend your money, be reminded that, that we worship uh, the god Caesar, right? Of course, the Jews had a real problem with that because uh, the, the Old Testament was very clear. They were not to, in any way, have any graven images, right? Any images of something that represented a god. And here it is right on this coin, a blatant idol image, Right? So it's kind of like they were carrying around an idol in their pocket. And the Pharisees, who were strict about Old Testament law, were like, yeah, this is bad, right? It, it amounts to carrying around a little idol in your pocket. And just to give you an idea how serious this was for the Jews, uh, the, Jew, the Jews in, Jude, in Jerusalem preferred death over allowing an image of Caesar to be carried into Jerusalem on a pole, right? So like, a, like a poster, like, you know, right outside now, there's all these elections going on, you know, elections of, have you voted yet <laughs> for your tie? I don't even know what they're voting for, but there's a lot of people with big red X's everywhere, right? And so, um, so they, they're like, if you brought this picture into Jerusalem of, of Caesar, they, they would die. They would actually lay down their life fighting against that because they saw it as idolatry. And yet here it is on this coin, right? So it was a big question. And like it or not, the Jews had to use this coin to pay the tax. Right? So you couldn't just like use some other currency. They had to use this coin, and it was mandated to pay the tax. Right? Uh, so the question, is it lawful 
to pay the poll tax. There's a lot of things going against this, right? A lot of things that would say, no, it's idolatry, it's wrong, you shouldn't be paying this tax. And so when the Pharisees teamed up with the Zealots on this point, uh, they saw the poll tax as a God-dishonoring badge of slavery to a pagan nation, right? This is a bad tax, right? This is not just any tax. This is an evil tax. This is a demonic tax, right? So, so there's the question to Jesus. Should you pay it? Right? And if Jesus, if Jesus would have said, um, well, you know, uh, you have to pay the tax, right? It's the way it is. You need to pay the tax. The crowds of Galileans who were his best supporters would have instantly turned against him. In fact, they may have been so enraged, they may have drug him out and stoned him right there and then. And the Pharisees would have said, yes, we got what we wanted, right? So this is what's at stake here, right? This is not just a minor theological debate where you you may ruffle some feathers. Like, this could be Jesus' life right here, right? But then there's the other side. Okay, that's just one side. The other side is the side of the Herodians. Who in the world were the Herodians? Well, they weren't a large group in in Judea, uh, but they were a group of, of Jews, Jewish people, who were loyal to the family and dynasty of King Herod. And if you remember, Herod the Great was um, built the temple, uh, but he's also the guy that tried to get Jesus killed uh, when he was born. Uh, uh, his sons were also uh, rulers in Galilee and in the northern regions, kind of a bad guy, actually, uh, but part Jewish. And so they had high hopes on the Herodian dynasty that, that the Herods would actually be granted permission to actually have full-on authority as a king. Uh, Herod called himself a king, and he kind of was a king, but very much under Roman rule. But they thought, well, the way to get out from underneath Roman rule was through the Herods. So if we support Herod and support his family, maybe someday we could have independence through Herod. So they were loyal to Herod, but Herod himself was loyal to Rome. He was very much in favor of Rome because that's where he got his power from. And so Herod was all about paying taxes to Rome, to keep Rome happy. And so were the Herodians. And the Herodians would have said, yeah, we need to make Rome happy. We need to do everything we can to support and show favor to Rome so they'll see that we're not a threat and they will give us independence. Uh, So they they would have been very much in favor of this tax as as a way to gain favor with Rome. Uh, So where were the Pharisees? How did the Pharisees get linked up? Remember it says that the Pharisees came with the Herodians. Now the Pharisees think this tax is is idolatry. How did they get connected with the Herodians who think it's it's what we need to do as loyal citizens? We need to pay this tax. Well, uh, the poor Pharisees were a little little bipolar on this one, right? They were a little conflicted. Because uh, the Pharisees loved the Bible. They loved the Scripture. And they were very diligent and serious about following the law to the letter. And when you actually look in the Old Testament and look at the law and what the Old Testament wrote, guess what it says about paying taxes to overlords and and kings who have have taken over your country? It says, yes, pay the tax, right? So if you follow Scripture, the right answer is, yeah, pay the tax. The law actually requires it requires it, right? So the Pharisees also kind of supported the Herodians, right? Because they were for paying the tax and they knew 
scripturally, it was the right thing. Right? So the Pharisees are a little schizophrenic here, a little confused on which side to take. But for them, it doesn't really matter. Because they don't really care. They're glad to play both sides. What they care about is which side Jesus will take. And here's the thing. If Jesus says, uh, don't pay the tax, the Herodians would probably have had him arrested right then and there and handed him over to Rome and accused him with being a, a treasonous rebel just like Judas of Galilee. Right? And that Jesus actually came because he's citing a rebellion against Rome and he refuses to pay the poll tax and see he's a bad guy. And the Romans probably would have put Jesus to death, death right then and there as a traitor and a rebel. And they did this often, right? With uh, guys like this, who they saw as, as uh, inciting insurrection or treason, right? So that's the rock and the hard place. Jesus says, uh, pay the tax. Uh, the crowds would stone him. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, they'll turn him over to the Romans and the Romans would execute him. Like, this is a good trap, right? And they have Jesus right where they want him. And it seems like there is no way out. Whatever Jesus answered, he is doomed, right? He is trapped. He is stuck, right? But Jesus um, is a great escape artist, and he does not get caught in their trap. And in fact, he snares them in their own trap. Uh, so, so let's see what Jesus, how does he handle this difficult thing? Um, uh, what's interesting is what Jesus does not say, right? Uh, and there's ways to avoid questions like this. And good politicians are really good at this, right? Good politicians are really good at avoiding these kinds of questions. And the first way they do it is, is, is the non-answer. Have you heard of this? I didn't even know this was a thing. I've lived, I guess, outside of America for too long. But in the United States, this is a thing, the non-answer. And there's actually a, a definition for it in the dictionary, a non-answer. Here's the definition for a non-answer. Providing a reply to a question that does not give any physical or concrete information. <laughs> this, is what, this is what politicians do, right? Um, the non-answer dances around the subject so well that it, the end result is a jumble of words that say nothing. Politicians excel at non-answers. That's in the dictionary. I'm not making that up. The dictionary actually says that. Politicians excel at non-answers, right? So speaking of, so they even give an example. Uh, speaking of politicians, Bill Clinton, former president of the United States, uh, way back a long time ago when um, uh, Barack Obama was running to be the president, uh, Bill Clinton was on Meet the Press, a TV news show, and they were interviewing him about and wanted to know his opinion about Barack Obama. And the news interviewer was trying to get uh, Clinton to say what a great man Obama was, and to, to really praise Obama. But the most that he could get out of him, he, he said, do you think Obama is a great man, would be a great leader? And, and this is what Clinton said. I think Senator Obama has shown a remarkable, a remarkable ability to learn and grow. He's always intelligent, and he's a good politician. Right? There it is. Is he a great man? Boy, is he a learner. Look at that guy just learn. Wow, what a politician. There's a non-answer, right? There's a non-answer. Uh, actually, it's kind of an insult. If the best you can say is he's growing and he's a politician. Um, not a good answer, right? 
Uh, Jesus could have done that. Right? He could have just given a bunch of stuff and in the end not answer at all. That's not what he does. Right? Another option is the answer of the brainiac scholar. Right? This is the person who knows how to use a lot of big words and deep, uh, complex uh, concepts to just confuse his audience. And Jesus could have done this. He could have gone into some you know, verb tenses in the Hebrew, and, but when you translate it into the Latin and the Greek and the tense of this verb and the pluperfect of that, and, da, 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 and, and there you go, you have it. And they're like, whoa, I, well, yeah, right, right. Because who's going to admit that they weren't smart enough to follow what he said, right? They would say, well, sure, yeah, um, uh, I think, right? But Jesus doesn't do that either, right? He doesn't try to distract them with something that's complex or long or complicated dialogue. Right? Instead, this is what he says. Jesus, uh, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test? You hypocrites, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Who is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. Okay, now some of this will actually go by us, because we don't actually know what all transpired here, but let me break it down a little bit and show you the genius here of Jesus' answer. Uh, first of all, he says, show me the coin. And by bringing a coin, it was proof that they actually were carrying this coin, right? They didn't say, well, we don't have a coin because we would never carry around this coin. No, they had it. It's like, oh yeah, here we go. Right here, I got one right here. Here you go. Right? Jesus didn't have the coin, by the way. But uh, his accusers did. They were carrying it around every day. They had no problem producing it. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that denarius was a, a very common everyday coin. Kind of like, you know, for us, maybe a thousand baht bill. You know, we have them. Uh, it's not hard to have them. But what's interesting is uh, that Rome knew that the Jews despised the coin with Caesar's image on it. They knew that, that it was an offense to them. So the Roman government actually had given them permission to mint their own special denarius out of copper without his face and without the inscription. Right? So everyday use, they could have used this coin that, uh, that was not idolatrous, right? that wasn't giving tribute to or, or promoting the worship of the emperor. Uh, but guess what? These guys don't have the, co- the copper coin. They pull out the real one, the gold or silver one, that was minted by Rome. They've got it, right? Why did they carry it? Well, because it was a lot more convenient. Like, the copper one was good if you're in Jerusalem, but if you go anywhere else, people wanted real money, not the Jerusalem version, right? And these guys wanted the real money. And so guess what? They carried it with them every day, all the time, Right? They used the real coin because it was better. Now remember, remember we said that the citizens of Jerusalem would rather die than allow Caesar's image to enter Jerusalem on, on a poster. And yet these guys had no problem carrying it in their pocket every day. Right? And you see, they really were hypocrites. They really were hypocrites. They claimed that they were opposed to it on the basis of idolatry, and yet they had no problem spending it every day. They just didn't want to spend it on the tax. Right? All of a sudden, it becomes unjust. 
and it becomes idolatry. But if I want to use it to buy cornflakes, well, no problem, right? Right? You see, they were hypocrites. And Jesus proves their hypocrisy, right? And as, as the kind of the scene unfolds, it becomes obvious. You, don't, you can't really have a problem with this coin because you have it and you use it every day, right? So he, uh, as it unfolds, he ends up really embarrassing his challengers. How can they protest the use of the coin uh, because of idolatry when they use it every day? Uh, but then he goes on and he, a- he asks them a question. Uh, he says, uh, uh, he, he, well, he answers the question. He says, he says well, here's the coin. It's, it's got Caesar's picture. And, and Jesus answers back, uh, give back to Caesar, literally give back to Caesar what is his. That's interesting. Uh, we need to study a little more Greek here. When they ask Jesus the question, they say, should we... They didn't say, should we pay the tax? Because that's not how you say it in Greek. They actually said, should we give the tax? Should we give the tax to Caesar? Right? Is it lawful? Is it permitted to give the tax? Uh, but when Jesus answered them, he doesn't say, yes, you should give it. Instead, he says, you should give it back. Different word. But that different word has incredible difference in meaning. Right? If I say to you, um, give me back my cell phone... What am I implying about the ownership of that cell phone? Well, I'm saying it's mine, right? Maybe I let you borrow it. Maybe you used it. Maybe you found it. But when I say give it back, I mean it's mine. <laughs> what are you doing with my cell phone, right? Uh, and, and Jesus says here simply this. He says, yeah, um, if it's Caesar's coin, you should give it back to him. Right? What are you, what are you doing with his property? Right? It belongs to him. It's not yours. So, yeah, give it back to him. Right? Oh. <laughs> oh. Right? It's not about the tax. It's about giving back to Caesar what belongs to him. And you better give to God what belongs to God. Right? Now, here's the, the amazing thing. Um, Jesus really is genius. And it wasn't necessarily because he was, had supercharged intellect or intelligence or IQ. It was because he had the wisdom of God. Right? And what happens, uh, Jesus completely defeats his enemies in 11 words. 11 words in Greek. 11 words, he leaves them speechless and in awe. And they're going like, wow, good answer. Right? Remember, they're trying to kill him. Right? They're trying to kill him. And all they can say is, whoa, that was pretty good. Right? In 11 words. 11 words, right? Uh, they cannot help but be amazed and impressed that Jesus answered. And all of them, both sides, have nothing to say. Right? So they thought they had him trapped, and Jesus walks out of the trap. And he leaves his accusers feeling silly and ridiculous as they put their idle coin back in their pocket. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. The, about the hip, hypocrite thing. I guess, yeah, that's me, right? <laughs> I'm just a hypocrite. I'm just a liar. I'm just a pretender. Um, so Jesus can't be trapped, right? He can't get out because he speaks truth. He does speak God's truth. And he's not a hypocrite. So it's easy for him to unravel these problems. 
Uh, but let's close uh, with a couple thoughts about what this means, what his answer means for us. Right? Uh, for one, it means that Jesus is super smart, and, and we can trust him. Right? We can trust him. But what does it tell us about our relationship to corrupt governments, to immoral governments, to governments that do things we don't agree with? Um, uh, even though Jesus' uh, answer was only 11 words long, there was so much truth here that later uh, New Testament authors like Peter and Paul unpack this much more fully. And we don't have time this morning to go into all that they wrote. Uh, but here's just a couple samples. Paul writes in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Right? Be subject. Uh, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So here's a principle. Every Governor, every ruler, every authority, every king is there because God has placed them there. Right? Now, this creates problems when it's a crazy general in Myanmar who seems like just a totally wicked person. But, but the truth is that God, no, there's no authority that exists apart from God's sovereign control and power. Right? And he uses it in, in mysterious ways I don't understand. He uses those even evil people to accomplish his good purposes. And he's sovereign over it. Right? Um, therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Right? Uh, he continues on a little bit later. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Right? So, so we are to respect and honor and obey and follow all the rulers and governors who are over us. First Peter 2, 13-17 says this, Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even immigration, ah. uh, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. <coughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Right? So, so here's a couple of quick principles. Uh, first, obedience is not worship. Following the laws of the land is not the same as worshiping the king. Right? For the Jews to pay that tax didn't mean that they were worshiping Caesar. Right? Um, if we follow the rules of a country, if we submit to the presidents and kings and prime ministers, it doesn't mean we agree with or support everything that they do. Right? It just means that we're respecting uh, their position as a God-given authority, and we obey them. Right? We don't support them. We may not like what they do. We may not believe in what they're doing. But it's not worship, right? Because we worship God. And we worship God and we can obey kings. Second thing, honoring the king honors God. 
Right? We show our obedience and our allegiance to God and recognize that he's the ultimate power over them all when we submit to human earthly leaders and we follow the laws. Right? And following the laws means things like uh, when we drive, following all the driving laws. Right? Ouch, right? I'm not very good at this one. Because uh, some of the laws just seem silly to me. But right, we respect the, the leaders and we show our obedience to God when we follow traffic laws or when we pay taxes, when we uphold the policies and laws of a nation. Um, the Jews uh, didn't want to pay the tax, not because it was idolatry. Really, they, wanted, they didn't want to pay the tax because it meant... Um, because they hated Rome, right? Um, we need to honor God by, by honoring the laws of the land. So does that mean that there's never a time when we should disobey? Well, absolutely not. Clearly, there are times when the laws of the land oppose God's direct commands. And then we don't obey. We obey God first. Acts 5, 27-29, uh, the Pharisees uh, actually had arrested Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, and they drag him through and they told them, look, um, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. <laughs> I wonder why. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Right? If there's a time when the laws of the land come in direct opposition to God's commandments, yes, you obey God first. Right? Uh, Preach the gospel. We are commanded to preach the gospel. And if a country says, no, you can't preach the gospel, we preach anyway. Just be careful. <laughs> but we, we preach the gospel anyway, right? Uh, there are times to disobey. Uh, but only when it's in direct conflict to God's law, right? To what God has commanded us to do. Um, finally, great thing to remember in all of this. Give to God what belongs to him. Uh, Jesus says, look, the coin actually belongs to, to, to Caesar. You better give it back to him. But give to God what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus died for us, and his blood is the redemption price, the price that God paid to save you. And, and this, Paul tells us in Corinthians, you are not your own anymore. You now, if you've been saved, you belong to God. So giving God what is his means giving him our very life. Right? We are to give our whole life to him in devotion and allegiance and love. Right? Uh, that's exactly what the Pharisees were not doing. Like, they didn't want to pay uh, and give allegiance to Rome, but they really didn't want to give allegiance to God either. And they were about to kill his own son. Right? They were not giving to God what was his. They were not giving God their love and devotion and genuine worship. Right? But we don't want to be like that, right? Yes, give to governments what's owed them. But give to God what is owe him? Uh, goes back to one of the uh, parables that Jesus told about the vineyard. 
and the wicked tenants of the vineyard weren't willing to give to the master what was due him. Right? Are we giving to God what is due him? Our life, our service, our heart, our affection, our worship. Right? And we want to do that well, right? So we're going to do that now. We're going to ask the worship team to come. And we want to give to God our lives and our hearts and our worship. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.